What's up, everyone? What a time to be alive. The crypto market is hitting all-time highs. One of my previous Health Unchained guests, Glenn DeVries, who was on episode 71, was recently launched into space with Blue Origin, the company from Jeff Bezos. And the U.S. has fully vaccinated about 70% of people over the age of 18. Monetary inflation in the U.S. is higher than it was during the last financial recession in 2008. Inflation is hovering over 5% in the U.S. There is a lot going on that is driving more people to start learning about crypto, blockchain, NFTs, and independence from institutional monetary systems globally. A Bitcoin ETF has finally been approved by regulators, marking a big milestone for blockchain in the financial sector. The ProShares ETF provides exposure to Bitcoin futures contracts instead of Bitcoin itself. To me, it makes no sense to buy Bitcoin ETF shares when you can purchase real Bitcoin from an exchange. In any case, it is a bridge to help more people learn about crypto and it legitimizes its value. Blockchain in healthcare is still a challenge for most organizations since healthcare is simply way more complex than financial instruments. Pharmacy care is an area of healthcare that can be dramatically improved with the use of decentralization and privacy-preserving technologies. And in this episode, I speak with one of Consensus Health's advisors and pediatric pharmacist at the University of North Carolina, Tyler Colbart. I met Tyler earlier this year, and I was inspired by his deep passion for introducing blockchain tech to the pharmacy community. Tyler has a background in psychology and a PharmD from the University of North Carolina. We talked about some of the greatest challenges and opportunities that blockchain brings to the pharmacy world, including hospital supply chain, patient safety, and improving public trust. I am so thrilled to share this conversation with you all, and I encourage you to reach out if you have any follow-up questions or comments for Tyler or myself. Contact info can be found in the show notes, or connect with the Health Unchained community on Telegram by going to t.me slash healthunchained. Before I jump into this episode, I'd like everyone to know that I'll be attending the inaugural Decentralized Trial Research Alliance meeting in Boston in the second week of November. The Decentralized Trial Alliance is not focused on decentralized ledger technology. So when they say decentralized, they are referring to remote-based trials or not centralized locations for clinical trials. I'm really excited to learn more about the clinical trial space directly from leaders who are interested in innovating. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dober, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technology to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained, everybody. Uh, today's show, we have Tyler Colvard, who is actually a advisor for Consensus Health, uh, the same company where I also work. So this, I think, will be a very interesting conversation because Tyler has spent most of his career uh, in the pharmacy world. So he's a pharmacist, a pediatric pharmacist at UNC, University of North Carolina. So I'll let Tyler introduce himself. And then we can kind of get into all the things that are happening in the blockchain space in healthcare and pharmacy. Uh, and we have a lot of questions to go through. So Tyler, welcome. 
Ray, thanks so much, man. Appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to bring me on and to just talk all things blockchain and healthcare. Uh, so as Ray said, my name's Tyler. Everybody can call me Ty. I grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina, about an hour west of Charlotte, North Carolina. And I grew up close to a drugstore. Uh, it was called The Drugstore in Lincoln County, little small mom and pop uh, pharmacy. And since my uncle didn't go on to, to become a pharmacist, um, my family basically planted that seed early in, in my mind. And they wanted me to, to go and be a pharmacist, which just so happens that that's kind of where my passion lied anyways. I'm growing up and seeing that, that drugstore and, and seeing what pharmacists could do for patients kind of was the reason why I even started thinking about becoming a pharmacist. And then my freshman year of high school, that's when I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So in that four years, you know, I played sports and, and probably, probably didn't study as much as I should have. And for whatever reason, they let me in at UNC Chapel Hill for undergrad for four years. And then for whatever other reason, they, they actually let me go to the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy for four more years. So I did eight years of school, um, and then I did a one-year residency, adult pharmacy residency at Moses Cone Hospital in Greensboro. And then after that, I was going to try to do a postgraduate year or two for pediatrics specifically, so another residency. That didn't work out, so I started applying for jobs, and that's another story we can talk more about if you want to, but essentially... I tried to apply for jobs. I didn't really hear from anybody. I had one interview, thought it went well. Basically, they strung me along for three, four weeks, never told me anything. And so I reached back out to one of the recruiters, one of the managers at Johns Hopkins. And she said, hey, well, you know, we'll set up an interview. And so I ended up actually getting a job at, at Hopkins in Baltimore. So me and the wife moved up there for a year and a half. Um, and we came back to North Carolina this January, which that's why I'm back at, at UNC hospitals now. So it's been a crazy ride, man. And, and I can talk more about specific specifics if you want me to, but for the most part, I, sh I shouldn't be where I am, but I'm super humbled and, and fortunate to, to be taking care of kids every single day. Well, that's interesting. So there's a lot of students and, you know, entrepreneurs who listen to this show. And it's funny you say like, you know, for whatever reason they got you in, but I'm sure the reason is because, you know, you, are passionate about what you're working on. You, you're eager to learn, and also uh, because you're smart, you you've been working hard to get to where you are. So don't sell yourself short there, Tyler. Um, <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. So that's interesting that you went to John Hopkins and then you came back to UNC. Was there like a? Is that just a personal reason, which is totally fine, or is there like a more career-based decision that you had to make there? Yeah, so when I got into pharmacy school at UNC, you know, my dream was always to work at UNC hospitals. Like that was that was the lifelong that was dream, your right? Goal. Okay. Yeah. And what's crazy, and I, I say like the reason I stayed for eight years at UNC was for the men's basketball team to get a national championship. And I got lucky because my third year of pharmacy school, we actually won. Um, and then I was like, oh, okay, I can graduate now. And so I went to Baltimore because what, what an incredible opportunity uh, to, to do exactly what I wanted to do. Not a lot of people get their dream job, at, you know, to work as a pediatric pharmacist. I worked with uh, the oncology, pediatric oncology population, as well as the neonatal ICU population, so the NICU population at Hopkins. And those were, those were the two things I wanted to do, right? And then I learned very 
early in my career, I was like, well, this is going to open doors for me. I'm super fortunate to have this job. But the plan was always to come back to UNC at some point. Well, the stories that I tell people is I came home and you know, me and my wife, we've always wanted to move back. And I come home on a Saturday and she looks at me and she throws a little onesie at me. And she said, uh, yep, so this is happening. So come find out she's pregnant, right? And my mind goes 100 miles an hour. So I'm working that weekend and I wake up next Sunday and I, I email my old boss at UNC because I worked as a technician there before uh, pharmacy school and stuff or during pharmacy school. And I said, hey, you know, like down the road and I'm thinking like three, five years down the road. I'm like, hey, can you, can you please uh, let me know if something opens up? You know, we'd love to come home at some point, right? Next day, that Monday, he says, hey, somebody dropped out of an interview. Can you interview this Friday? And so I had to switch my whole schedule around and I interviewed four days later and then fast forward and I got the job and now we're back in our home state um, with family, with friends. Um, and it's been, it's been a huge blessing. I love Baltimore, but there's nothing like family and like my brother and sister-in-law, they live eight, nine minutes away from us. And it's been cool to, to watch their girls grow up and now to watch my daughter grow up her three months three-month birthday is actually today so it's been cool to to see her grow up and that she was the main reason so it's my daughter's fault that we're back <laughs> well that's great um you know very good reason so i totally yep. understand and that's it's amazing that you're living your dream job uh dream life really mm -hmm. so let's get into you know how your academic research experience influences your perspectives in the healthcare tech industry being part of consensus health as an advisor, you are very much into the AI blockchain world and you're tuned into that. So how has your academic research really influenced how you think about that industry? Yeah. So from being a student, uh, you know, we learn a lot about, you know, reviewing literature and looking for certain stats and things like that. And then as I got into residency, pretty much every time you do a residency, you have to do a project. Right. And one, one of my favorite things is, is technology. And so if I can do anything to combine what I know and what I'm good at, so the pharmacist in, in the healthcare space, how can I utilize technology to help uh, push healthcare? But now this whole door's opened up for me since last year when I connected with Consensus Health of, oh my gosh, like there's so much more opportunity for technology, not just technology that we use every day, like computers. Uh, you know, video te telehealth and, and things like that. There's an untapped market now in this bucket, which we call blockchain technology. And I see, I see endless possibilities. The problem is and the hurdles, as we've talked about before, is how do we share this technology, share the message with healthcare systems in a way that they don't feel like we're trying to steal what they already have or that we're, because people don't want change. They hate change. They don't want it. And Absolutely. I don't know how we get in there. Like if it, if it was up to me, I'd walk up to, you know, CEO of the hospital, board members, whoever I had to say, hey, we have blockchain technology. So revolutionize the future. We have federated learning. Um, we're, we're doing all the things that you want from a privacy preserving perspective. Let us go to work. But I feel like there's there's going to be a lot of backlash. There's going to be a lot of questions, 
And even if I convince one person, you have to convince the whole hospital system and, and we're working on it. We're getting there, I think, day by day. Um, but that's really where the passion lies. It's just, hey, all the technology right now, telehealth, those things are incredible and they do incredible things for, for patients. And especially with the pandemic, this kind of pushed everything more digital. Uh, so many more doors can open up if people allow it with blockchain, with federated learning um, and what Consensus Health is doing. So yeah, I'm excited to see what that next wave is and, and, and see how we get there. But it's, it's going to be a bumpy road for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there are a lot of opportunities, but those conversations still need to happen. So yes. I think yes. it's important that those decision makers do fully understand what they're getting into before they get into it or sign off on anything. So I understand and I actually appreciate the, the extra effort that goes into the education part. Of course, I'd like it to happen faster, just like you. But given that the healthcare industry is somewhat sensitive to change, like you mentioned, it's worth our time to fully investigate, not just yeah. the pros, but really the cons, because with any new technology, there's capability of it being used for good, a lot of good, but there are some ways that it can be misused or abused. And we have to think about that before we implement, you know, yeah. just in case, of course. Um, yeah. And that's why we're here. That's why the, this industry keeps growing. More people start keep talking about it. I wish it was as simple as, hey, CEO, let's go. Uh, yeah. And they, you know, click a button and we start working on it. But blockchain is something where it's not just a technology, but it also impacts the way we interact with each other in a social level, financial level. You know, it's the internet of value. So it's, it's way different than just the internet of information, which we've right. already like kind of been working with as web yeah, 2.0 yeah exactly web 2.0 you know fourth industrial revolution and you know just like any new technology which is cool to be on the forefront of this and and to really be some pioneers in the healthcare space which is why i love uh you know working with you and working with consensus health and that we have a vision and we know where we pretty much want to go globally speaking and then there's going to be use cases that come up along the way that we didn't even think about that are going to be awesome right so i think that's where it starts like although i want everything to eventually go to healthcare systems that's going to be harder that's going to be a harder sell than doing something like clinical trials matching and and and, and taking a, a real world use case and putting patients where they need to be and then when you show that model and you say hey we've shown this time and time again here's how we do it in a privacy preserving way then you present that and that's your sell to the hospital to the ceo and it's like, oh, well, we want this in our system. You know, so I think, I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like there has to be a model. There has to be like a, an example to follow before you just go in and, and, and change healthcare systems. Right. And I feel like now the industry is really just seeing a bunch of different experiments, some like mm -hmm. at a higher level than others. Um, but this will take time. And, but that's okay. Like all things, all good things take time. When did you actually first hear about blockchain? Like, when did you fall into this rabbit hole? I know you've done a lot of research on it, so I'm curious, like, oh, yeah. what extent of time was. Mm -hmm. Well, just like everybody else, like, you hear something new, you, you get scared, you don't trust it. Like, that's our innate, innate reaction is, oh, this is this is dark magic. You know, I, I don't, there's, there, you know, you got Mount Gox, you got all these uh, random shady uh, Silk Road things going on. You got people selling it for drugs and doing all this for, for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I heard about Bitcoin probably 2014, 2015. 
And I was like, oh, whatever. This is, I don't know what this is. And it kind of freaks me out. And I see people getting scammed and whatever. So I kind of just put it on the back burner. And then um, oddly enough, you know, one of my buddies, he uh, was going to put $10,000 in Bitcoin like back in like 2010, 2011. Uh, his financial advisor said it's, don't do it. It's it's a scam. It's rat poison, whatever. And he uh, he regrets that decision very heavily right now because yeah. he, I mean, he's he would be sitting on multi millions, if not a billion dollars, right now. Um, and so he he told me about it a little bit, and then actually uh, probably January, February, twenty twenty, um, somebody mentioned blockchain. I said, all right, I gotta, I gotta look this up just, just to, just to learn more, right? Because it, and I feel like that's a problem with a lot of the world is people are scared about certain things, different things, but knowledge is power. And if you research and you learn, you realize, oh my God, this is like the opposite of, you know, of a scam or whatever. This, this is going to change lives. And mm-hmm. then you start, you basically start teaching everybody that you can, like, hey, I know, I know it's a lot, but if you do your own research. There's no, and I tell everybody this, I'm like, the people that say it's a scam and don't trust blockchain and hate crypto have done zero research. Because once you do, you, you figure out, just like I did in, in, in March of 2020, went down the rabbit hole. I started reading white paper after white paper after white paper. I made my first investment in Ethereum and Chainlink and uh, right after the COVID crash. That's another piece that I want to tell people. When you go invest, you know, D-Y-O-R, do your own research. But at the same time, it does depend on when you get in the market. And if you have emotions tied to it, well, for me, I got super lucky, right? I pretty much caught the bottom for most of my investments. And so everybody's a genius in a bull market. And I wrote it up and, uh, you know, that's been fun. That's been great. But everybody's like, oh, so, and now, now I have like all these people that are asking me, like, should I invest in this? Should I do this? I'm like, I've been telling y'all for 10 months like you should be investing now when it's low because now i'm scared to tell them like sure it, it can it can pump and it could go way up right but this is not the time to get in this is when people start selling on you and you actually lose that value so it's it's been hard but i would say i went in the rabbit hole uh march april of last year and i'm still in it man i put in i don't put in as much because i got i got in trouble a couple of times uh but you know, I was putting in six, seven hours a day. I tell everybody that listen to me, I've studied more about blockchain, healthcare and blockchain, crypto, uh, than, I, than I've studied for, for any other test exam in college. And it's, it's so new, it's so fun. And, and I mean, you're not gonna, if you're not learning something daily, you're doing something wrong in this space. And I think we're so early and we're a part of the front end of this paradigm that is about to take over eventually. Agreed. Yeah, it is still pretty early, uh, and it, which makes it really exciting because we really don't know what's going to happen. And it's not just blockchain that's going to make our future in healthcare. It's going to be blockchain with all these additional technologies like AI, wearables. You know, you mentioned telehealth. Um, there's a lot going yeah. on that's going to complement blockchain. So it should be interesting. Yeah, question One, for you about that, sure. if you don't mind. So do, do you feel like they're we're going to run parallel. So you're going to have all like the normal technology we have now. So the wearables, the IOTs, and then yeah. we're going to have blockchain. And then eventually they're going to converge and, and start overlapping. I think there will be parallel advancements in all these technologies. Uh, finding the right use case for blockchain where people like, like the killer app for blockchain and healthcare, 
I think is still being developed. Um, yeah. It might have something to do with privacy preserving tech because I feel like that's been I know, at mm-hmm. the forefront of other industries as well, like you know, just finance and all that. So it should be interesting to see how that rolls out. Maybe it'll have something to do with you know vaccine passports, or maybe it'll have something to do with you know ownership of one's own data or there's a lot of different use cases. I don't know exactly what is going to be that killer <laughs> app. I've been talking to people a lot and you know, I can't say for certain it's, and it could happen where there's multiple killer apps that come out at the same time that are related or maybe not. Yeah. Only time will tell. Um, if yeah. someone, some audience members or guests <laughs> think that they know, let me know. I'd love to feature you on the show and, and talk to you about it. Um, Moving on, I'd like to, I know you have a psychology background as well. And part of blockchain has to do with game theory and what are the incentives around people getting involved, sticking with it or leaving. How important are incentives and economics in healthcare in terms of like psychology? Yeah. So I think globally speaking, um, are you talking about more for like patients and like good healthcare and, and providing them incentives as well? Yeah. I think in terms of like the individual patient, how are psychological incentives important, but also in terms of like overall industries. So for example, when a provider is trying to get reimbursed for certain mm-hmm. procedures that they can, that they, um, that they do for a patient, you know, they have to, choose which procedure or which treatment is best for the patient. But if there are certain like guidelines, medical guidelines that kind of force the provider to choosing a certain treatment, because like, that's like the the national standard, um, it, it makes the incentives kind of uniform where in my vision of the future, it's more personalized. And there, there is some level of personalized medicine happening. And we were seeing that with value-based agreements, like, you know, looking at the patient from a holistic perspective, but I don't think we're there yet. There's still some fee-for-service incentives too. So I guess, you know, it's kind of an open question. Um, Answer it how you'd like. Yeah. Yep. So I think- Well, I guess one thing just to add is I'd like to know from your, you know, PharmD perspective, from a pharmacist perspective, because there are incentives to prescribe generic drugs, for example, uh, as opposed to an expensive, maybe more effective, not really clear, branded drug so maybe from that perspective could be interesting yep so um a couple of examples you'll see you have inpatient to hospital then you have outpatient so clinics um your walgreens your target your you know your cds pharmacies and the way that things work is how you bill in each of those departments or each of those settings is different and so when you're a doctor under the umbrella of the hospital Um, you need to basically follow guidelines within the hospital, but then you also need to follow national guidelines. And so there's certain tiers and strategies that like the centers for Medicaid and Medicare basically have like a, a a star or a point system where you have to do these things in the hospital setting. So a prime example that I can think of is reduced MRSA infections. So line changes with with IV medications daily to prevent infection, Um, you know, hand sanitizer in all the hallways, Um, basically all these standards that are kind of, you have to do these things uh, to to measure the mark. Because there's a company, not a company, but um, they'll call it JCO. They're basically the 
organization, the national organization that comes in and surveys the hospital and, and um, you know, does surveys to, to see, are you meeting the standards? Are you not? And then there's reimbursement that gets taken away. There is, um, there's also incentives. So if you're doing things right, then you get more access to drugs, you get more access to certain um, quality of care. And I'm kind of biased because I'm at a hospital that just provided all those things pretty much without concern um, and pretty big health system. Uh, but for your more small rural areas and smaller community hospitals, there's a lot of things that they don't get because they don't have the technology or they don't have uh, the backing and the funding to, to do those things. And especially in my case, it's kind of, it's a cool, it's a cool uh, conglomeration of research, academia and, and healthcare all in one because the pharmacy school is there, the medical school is there, and that's the hospital. And so there's actually a bridge between all of those to make sure that patients get medications and services that are based on national national guidelines and i think that's where like you said they kind of get pigeonholed into well there's a guideline here and you have to follow this guideline even if like say there's a doctor that worked in you know asia or they worked in africa or they had they saw different practices and and a better way to do something well you're, you're gonna look like the crazy person if you're not following that guideline to a t mm-hmm. And so that kind of that kind of makes them shrink back and, and, and not be as expressive as you're talking about. Um, from a pharmacy perspective specifically, so in the hospital, what we try to do is we try to make sure that every patient gets the right drug at the right time at the right dose. Um, we try to make sure that we prevent waste. So there's a lot of medications that get returned on deliveries in the hospital that are just wasted and tossed out. If it's Tylenol, if it's ibuprofen, something like that, it's compared to the whole cost of the hospital system, it's, it's, it's pennies on the dollar. But when you start talking about IV medications and really expensive medications, there is a certain amount of stock that we can keep in the hospital at all times because uh, if we overstock and we don't use it, we don't get reimbursed uh, for certain things. And then if you give a drug uh, without with it being in a certain setting, so there's certain drugs that you cannot give inpatient. And this is based on a formulary, like an agreed to formulary by the um, P&T Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee. And basically you can take certain medications while you're inpatient, but there are other ones where if you you give it to a patient inpatient, then it's non-reimbursable because it was supposed to only be given in a clinic setting outside, so an outpatient setting. And so that's been really the hardest thing for me to learn is how do we do, how do we perform good transitions of care? So how do we make sure patients not only have what they need when they're inpatient, but even more importantly, and I think this is what, this is another one of the JCO standards of preventing rehospitalization is, all right, we send a patient home on all the appropriate meds, right? That's, that's the goal. That's the hope. And then we hope that lifestyle changes um, and then patient medication adherence is hundred percent. Obviously it's not most of the time but that'll help to reduce the risk of being put back into the hospital essentially. And so um, transitions of care is super important. Get, get from the hospital back home and stay at home. And then when you have follow-up visits in the community clinics, are we still providing um, care across the board? I think that's where blockchain comes in. I think my, you know, my ideal scenario is you follow a patient at the very beginning and, I'm, and, and this is way down the line, but 
a patient gets born right today. At that moment, they have their first block on the blockchain. This is like their, their there's so many bioethical concerns there, but let's keep going. Let's yeah. keep going. Aside from that. Yeah. Yeah. Aside from all the regulatory and yeah, the ethics, forget that for a second. So they have their, their first block on the blockchain, right? It's a clean slate, essentially. Um, they have their first checkup. So two month vaccines, and this is a healthy child, two month vaccines. At that moment, they get the, they get the shots. It updates. And I, I talked about this yesterday on a, on a podcast I was on as well is there's NFTs, that's the whole rage right now, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and uh, utilizing um, dynamic NFTs, which I know you've, you've probably heard like Chainlink and how they use dynamic NFT technology. So the, the prime example I tell everybody who can look this up is LaMelo Ball for the Charlotte Hornets um, is one of the first use cases using dynamic NFT technology. And what it is is it's going to follow his career and any time that he has a really good year or he wins an award like rookie of the year or something like that, that NFT updates with those stats. So I see that being a, I, I see that being something in healthcare where, all right, I got my two month vaccines that updates on my NFT. And now, you know, the next thing I, you know, I have a procedure done that gets updated on the NFT throughout your whole life. And that has your de-identified information on it. Um, that has everything you need to know. So you're not chasing charts. You're not chasing paper charts. It doesn't matter if you're in, we use Epic system, Epic EMRs at UNC, and that's what we used at Hopkins too. But then you have other ones like Cerner, which is a different interface. It's a different um, type of EMR or electronic medical record. And it's hard to, to send from one system to another. And sometimes it's even hard to send from within the same system to different hospitals. And so my vision is you have literally one bucket, de-identified bucket that provides you all the information you want. You know, we pull out what we need for this visit and we can, we can take it with us wherever we go. It doesn't matter. And then everybody has instantaneously through smart contracts. Um, they can pull out the data they need in a, in a fast and efficient manner. And so that's going to reduce the risk of delayed patient care. That's going to make more things efficient, make more visits efficient. That's going to reduce the, the amount of days spent in the, the hospital or the length of stay. I see so many different ways this can go. So it's, it's, it's you know, it's exciting whether or not it happens. I, it could be 20, 30, 40 years. That is really interesting. Uh, there was a lot there. So uh, I took a yep. few notes. A couple of things I wanted to go over were like patient adherence and like how that um, can be improved through blockchain. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But another thing you mentioned was about the how the hospital manages their drug inventory. And while you were talking about that, I was thinking about a potential like system, an IoT kind of based system where every drug or um, you know container of drug is sort of on this immutable ledger. So it's kind of in an auditable inventory system because there are problems of medical, unfortunately, medical professionals, doctors, nurses, um, staff actually stealing from hospitals. And this is part or, you know, one of the issues we're seeing in the opioid crisis. This is, you know, I like to talk about it because not a lot of people do, but this does yeah. happen. There are lots of, you know, regulation around that, you know, there are enforcement against people, you know, you'll get fired if you steal drugs right. from the hospital. But uh, I think that we adding blockchain to that system can really help 
increase the trust and transparency amongst all people that work at a hospital. Um, yep. Any thoughts, comments on that? Yeah. So one of the things that actually popped up and I, I, I was trying to think of what the name of it was, but I, for right now, it's escaping me. There's a, there's a podcast that one of my coworkers actually told me to listen to about this pharmacist who um, worked with oncology meds. So oncology IV meds and what he was doing for years uh, it was, he, he was essentially, um, murdering people, but what he was doing wow. was he was diluting all the chemo so that he could make a higher revenue and keep like, so you had one vial, right. And that, that one patient's vial was, it was supposed to be for one patient. He would take a little bit out of that vial, make a bag for the patient and say, Hey, it's, it's 500 milligrams. This is your dose. When in reality, the actual dose inside the bag was 10 milligrams, right? Severely underdosed. Wow. So you got patients that are relapsing. You got patients and people can't figure it out. They're like, well, they're getting no chemo. And the way that they picked up on it was um, there's certain chemos, most chemos that cause hair loss, that cause nausea, vomiting, all those side effects that you would expect. Like it's like, it's not hundred percent, but you would tell your patients, Hey, it's spet nausea, vomiting, it's spet hair loss, it's spet these things. And his patients, they weren't seeing that. And they're like, what's going on here? Right. Hmm. Like he's got the magical cure. And so wow. in that, in that scenario, right. He, he's making killing. So every time he basically dispensed the dose, he made money and then could resell vials back to the, like the manufacturer for a profit for like medications he didn't use. And so he ended up like accumulating millions and millions of dollars because he was defrauding patients. And so when I think about what you were talking about, that's a prime example of how blockchain prevents that because you know there's this vial that has this much. And when you scan it for that patient, here's the amount in the inventory that should be taken out. And there, you know, people can manually change that if we if we make it where it's on the blockchain and everything's automated and it's verifiable, you know you can't steal it because it's there, it's out in the open. You you can't defraud the patient because you know exactly what's supposed to be in there. And then you can trace it if, if there's money that you wouldn't think should be there pops up, you can trace it and say, well, this is where the problem arose, you know? And so I, I, I see, I see supply chain, blockchain being that solution at a very high level, not only for medications, but for supplies for the hospital from literally everything you think of. Um, so uh, medications are one, um, supplies, you know, IV bags, um, nursing equipment, all those things that you can put on there. Cause people, you go into a med room, there's like batteries, there's medications, there's supplies that you can literally just grab things and walk out. And, you know, most people sure. are going to try to steal the drugs and the opioids back to that point. But even then, there's some faulty processes, um, and people still get caught. And if you get caught with an opioid, you're, you're pretty much in trouble. Um, but that would help reduce, you know, waste, fraud, abuse, and more people would be held accountable in, in a verifiable way. And um, yeah, I'll yeah, stop and, there. Yeah. yeah, no, thanks for that. And and there's a couple couple key issues with that our challenges that we face, like blockchain, just adding it, it's not going to fix the problem. Uh, one of the reasons being, you know, there still is that human element that needs to enter the data into a blockchain or like verified things so an oracle needs to be there that problem still hasn't been solved i believe that certain levels of you know i would say like 
computer vision or even like video surveillance using AI to kind of like watch what's going on. I know a lot of people listening probably think like, oh my God, this is going to, you know, we're going to a a state run world where everything, people are watching us all the time. Um, It won't be people that are watching. It'll be AI. (laughs) It won't actually be humans. Um, You know, we could talk about that as a different subject. Um, Yeah, I would love to. And I also want to mention that the majority of healthcare professionals aren't wasting or defrauding the system. It's a few, you know, I don't want to like, I guess I could say bad apples or whatever. Um, however, even one bad apple in a hospital can create a perspective of lack of trust in the entire system. So that is an important factor to consider. Just one bad apple can create this mistrust with the system. And that's an important thing. Our optics for patients and providers and the whole system overall need to be trusted and transparent. So hopefully eventually blockchain will be able to help with alleviating that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see here. There's a lot to go into. I'm thinking about some of the work that you've done uh, regarding how, and this is kind of a different subject going Mm -hmm. to how, knowing the sensitivity of patients for certain drugs can influence or can help prevent uh, allergic reactions to patients. Like, so you're kind of talking about that in terms of like data interoperability, being able to see the patient's medical history um, beforehand. And I think blockchain can help with that. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the research you've done in that area and maybe even specific examples you've looked into? Yep. So one of the things I do as a pharmacist is when, when a patient comes into the hospital, a pediatric patient, I'll do a full review of their profile and try to determine what's their med history, if they have one, um, if they've been in the hospital before, what medications have they taken, and I look at, is it appropriate, are the current medications that they're on in the hospital, are there drug interactions? Um, and I'll talk specifically about this enzyme called um, cytochrome P450. It's a, I'll try to keep it high level, um, but there's different interactions that can happen that can either reduce the effectiveness of drugs, increase the effectiveness of drugs, which then leads to toxicity, side effects, all the things that we try to minimize. And I tell everyone that, uh, and it's kind of the wrong way to say this as a pharmacist, but this, this is kind of how I see it, is we'll give you a med that'll solve one problem, but it's probably gonna cause another one over here. And it, it, it's balancing that risk of uh, benefit versus risk. And, uh, and you'll see that a lot with like the oncology population, cause you know, there's gonna be horrible side effects, but you're, you wanna beat your cancer. And that's kind of the game we play specifically to the interaction piece. Um, there are different, many different types of enzymes in your body. One of the main ones when we talk about drug metabolism is cytochrome P450 or CYP P450 for short. Um, Not to get too much into the weeds, but there are different types of CYP P450 enzymes. The main one for most drug metabolism is CYP3A4. That's about 70, 80% of meds that get metabolized by that one. Other ones are 2D6. So when we think about opioids and when we talk about the opioid epidemic as well, uh, 2D6 is a marker for certain opioids and that determines pain alleviation or um, side effects and toxicity. And then there's a few others, uh, 2C19 
is another really common one. And I would honestly say this is the one that actually gets put into clinical practice at the very beginning, like 3A4, 2D6. We don't really screen patients for those enzymes unless there's a specific genetic anomaly that we're looking for. So, I'm, you know, my hope, if, if money wasn't an issue, if ethics and stuff weren't an issue, is that every single patient would have like a genetic genomic profile that provides you all the data you need and you could search and, and you'd be able, us as pharmacists would be able to uh, pick out the best therapy for you based on genetic data, those sorts of things so we can minimize the side effects and increase the benefits you would get. Um, but 2C19 specifically is uh, something that, Every patient that starts a particular medication called clopidogrel, uh, ticagrelor is another specific subset of that type of medication. They have to get that screening to see what kind of enzyme activity they have with 2C19 to determine if that patient would actually be a candidate. Because the way, the work, the way that clopidogrel works is it's what's called a prodrug. And a prodrug is something that has to be activated by the enzyme to become active in the body. And so if you think about it, if you don't have that enzyme activity to actually break that drug down from an inactive component to an active component, you, you don't get that therapeutic benefit. So it's a waste of time to start patients on that if we don't know their status or if they don't have any activity um, with that enzyme. So that's just a, an example of that that I was thinking of. Yeah, no, that's really important. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because we are playing this game where we're alleviating patient symptoms in one place, but certain drugs can, you know, impact the patient negatively. So there's always that balance. And it's much better to have more information about the patient so you can control that balance or at least be more aware of some of the risks involved. And genetic, having a genetic screening, I think makes a lot of sense. And I do think that's becoming more common in standard practice, which is good as the cost of genetic sequencing goes down, that becomes more common. And yeah, so we'll see how that plays out. And I do think that blockchain can eventually secure the patient's genomic information so that it's not, you know, all over the EMRs and potentially accessible by um, any hospital staff without the patient's awareness or knowledge. And I think that's an right. important thing. Yeah. I guess to that, to that point specifically, do you think, like say at the moment that somebody wants to access my data, mm -hmm. like on the blockchain, would it be, Hey, uh, you receive, a, like you receive a message and then you have to sign to verify to say, Oh, yep, that's good. I'll sign the transaction. And then it sends it back through a smart contract through an Oracle to the provider saying, yes, you can access my data or no, you can't. I do. Is that where you kind of see that going? Yeah, I could see it in two ways. One where, like you just said, if someone knows that you are a patient in the hospital, but you know can't see all the levels of information that they need to, but they want to access a certain uh, field of information, let's take genomic information as the example, mm -hmm. they would have to make the request and you'd get a notification as the patient or maybe the next, you know, the, the person that the patient uh, is relying on to make those decisions if the patient can't do it themselves. Um, and they would give that permission and they might give that permission for a day, an hour, a year, and they can make that decision uh, yeah. just so that there isn't like this, you know, constant possibility that the information is out there. 
the so that's how i see it the other way is once the patient gets their genetic information for the first time they can make it available to their entire health team they could make it available to just their one doctor um it will have this dynamic e-consent system i think that's how it will work uh kind of similar to how now you can see when you go to a website and they're asking you if you'd want to allow cookies to be shared your cookies from your browser now you're able to select whether or not you want the essential cookies to be shared, the marketing related cookies, uh, performance related cookies. You can delineate which specific cookies you are willing to share with the, the central party, yeah. uh, which is good. But, and I can see that happening in the future with healthcare data as well. Some patients won't care. They're going to be like, oh, just share all my information because I just want to get better, which is yeah. a very reasonable thing. Like, at, at, a certain point, you really don't care what information you're sharing because, you know, as a patient, it's a life or death situation. You don't want to risk, run the risk of not sharing one vital piece of information that you didn't know would be important. That's true. Um, and so that's a conversation that will continue to happen. Like, yeah, what information is important and when? Yeah. yeah it's, it's super complicated and there's always, you're always going to have like an issue, no matter, even if we think we, we built the perfect system, somebody's going to question something. There's always going to mm -hmm. be legal issues and things like that, especially with healthcare, privacy, all those things. But I think we're, we're headed in the right direction. I think a lot of the things consensus health is trying to do is, is fighting those battles and figuring out the best way to do it and not, not rushing into it, but making sure that the foundation is laid um, in a way that makes future uh, things successful. And I thinking about that, thinking about one of like one of the use cases I could see happening, and I, I want your opinion on this as well, is in my head, you know, I'm, you know, I'm born. We do we do the whole like NFT or we do the whole first block on the blockchain all the way until I'm 18 years old, right? But up to that point, I'm a minor, mm -hmm. and you need you need smart contracts and oracles to uh, effectively update on my my 18th birthday. So now it, all of my data shifted from my mom or my dad, and now I'm legally the guardian or the owner over that data. And I could see like a smart contract firing or an Oracle firing um, saying, all right, now today all the data is, is yours. You know, you have access to all your data. Your parents no longer have that access. But then the issue is going to be, well, patients that have um, like different uh, neurological issues and can't think for themselves well, is there a caveat where when they turn 18, it stays with the parents? Or if there's a patient that is in a coma, can't really make their own decisions, and then they come out of that coma, and now you know, they're coherent, they're doing well, um, then at that moment, a, a smart contract fires and, and gives them their data. And I know there's like a lot to, to unpack there, but I think it would be cool, and I, you know, I, could, I could see smart contracts that automatically fire at certain points in people's lives um, but I don't, I don't know if that's viable or, or something that we would potentially see in the future. What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I th I'm glad you brought that up because there are a lot of caveats in healthcare. We don't fully understand everything about the body and the brain. I think we all understand and believe that um, we're always getting better. But there are certain guidelines that we have in practice now that might not make sense as we learn more about a condition area or whatever. Um, you know, specifically to your example, if an 18-year-old person 
reaches that age, but they are not psychologically able to make healthcare decisions or a lot of decisions for themselves, there needs to be exceptions to the smart contract rules. And I think usually when technology gets built out, it gets built out for the majority. And a lot of people with accessibility issues are not being part of the design. Uh, They're not considered in the design process. Um, I think that these are some of the questions that we need to bring up when we are building blockchain solutions for healthcare. And it's not easy. I don't have the solutions, but it is something that we need to think about. And that's why I think bioethics is so important in this space, because uh, there's a lot of things that we're building and we're building it for the majority. But at the end of the day, if we really want this to become a mainstream thing, it's not only the majority that need to adopt it. It's everyone that interacts with the minority as well. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't work. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't have answers for you. I feel like it's, it's a tough problem. Yeah. Uh, but given the dynamic nature of blockchain and smart contracts, it could be built into the system itself. Mm-hmm. The issue is going to be if someone's on like a borderline kind of they're able to make decisions, but some people say that they're not, they've been diagnosed with a condition uh, that says like they shouldn't make decisions, but they feel as an individual that they could make decisions. So that is a harder kind of uh, conversation and, you know, not being a neurologist, psychiatrist, I can't really answer. And I'm sure it's, it goes case by case, but being able to have the technology to have those caveats work and make those exceptions work with the system, with the technology, I think will be important. And I think there'll be companies focusing on those niches as well. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to tap Sean's brain and, and potentially like, hopefully he'll watch this at some point and he'll probably have some input from like the, from his research of like total brain injuries and things like that. And his work that he does with like the VA and um, Department of Defense and things. For the audience, here Tyler is talking about Sean Mannion, Chief Scientific Officer at Consensus Health. Sean is the co-author of a book called Blockchain for Medical Research, Accelerating Trust in Healthcare. Because I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of things that they'll unseen, and you only know what you know, and you only know what you see. But I've, you know, I've, I've grown older, I've grown wiser, I know how the world works now, and I realize, like, government or tv or you know they're going to tell you all the things that they're going to put out in the open but then there's probably a hundred different things going on behind closed doors that we'll never know so we just have to trust that the end product is how it should be mm-hmm. without having to know how the the sausage is made to say you know so it's it's interesting to think through all these complex ideas in a way that people trust the process to get to the end product, but then they also trust the end product and that it was built in their best interest collectively, which there's a lot of, there's a lot of cynicism. There's a lot of doubt with, and, and this is not me being political, but a lot of people doubt government choices. A lot of people doubt healthcare providers sometimes. And yeah. you, you and, and unfortunately those patients have to rely on the doctor to take care of them and, and trust them as much as they can to, to make sure that they come out on the other side healthier and better. And so it's, it's, it's interesting, man. There's, there's so yeah. much here um, to, to unpack.
Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. On October 22nd, 2021, 23andMe announced plans to acquire Lemonade Health, an on-demand telehealth platform, for $400 million, 25% of it in cash and the other 75% of it in 23andMe shares. 23andMe, a leading consumer genetics and research company, will be adding Lemonade Health's telemedicine and prescription drug delivery services to its consumer solutions offerings. Anwaj Kiki, CEO and co-founder of 23andMe, stated, By starting with genetics as the foundation, we will give patients and healthcare providers better information about health risks and treatments, opening up the door to prevent as well as better manage disease. Eliminate Health's focus on the patient and its philosophy of delivering individualized care fits perfectly with our mission of empowering people to take control of their health. I'm so excited for the synergistic possibilities when these companies join forces. These companies will have access to a great deal of patient data and probably the biggest stack of consumer genetics data in the industry. Personalized medicine is in its early stages of development, and these companies have a competitive advantage over others in the space. Unfortunately, there is no evidence that 23andMe or Lemonade Health are leveraging decentralized ledger technologies to secure their data for patients. Time will tell how the new company will integrate blockchain into their solutions. I hope you enjoyed this news corner. Check out the link in the show notes for more information on this press release. And now back to our conversation with pharmacist Tyler Colvard from UNC. We talked a little bit about some of the challenges and barriers, but what would you say are like the biggest barriers to blockchain adoption in healthcare? I was absolutely trust. People people don't people don't trust new things. And then most people, I would say majority of people think if something works now, why change it? You know, they don't care. They, they don't care about more fit efficient. Well maybe they do, like with the internet. We just imagine if we were still on dial up, we wouldn't be talking right now. But that's besides the point. Um, but for for trying to make things more efficient and to provide, like I talked about earlier in the show, getting that CEO, that hospital to to jump on board, like that's that's the barrier. It's 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 trusting what we're bringing to the table, and it's and the hardest part is how do you talk to that CEO who has an hour blocked away in his busy schedule? To, to hear an elevator pitch when this topic of blockchain, crypto, uh, healthcare, it's, it, it, it's, it's a multi-year conversation. And I, and I don't think a, a PowerPoint slide deck does it justice because there's going to be plenty of people, say me and you put together a presentation and we go in and, and we talk to board members of the hospital plus the CEO. And we have to pitch, like we have this privacy preserving technology that's called blockchain that is going to revolutionize everything you do in the hospital. It's going to make all your systems more efficient. It's going to uh, help reduce a lot of promises. Yeah. It's like all the, I'm sure they've heard it before. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And they're like, yeah, okay. Okay. Whatever. And, but this time, you know, we, it's not just, it's not just pitching something to them. It's okay. Do they even understand what we're saying? And that's the first thing, like, do you know what blockchain is? No, okay, well, we got to do a whole presentation on what blockchain technology is. Do you know what crypto is? Oh, it's a scam. Well, it's not. Here's why it's not. That's a whole other conversation. And then for me, I've been in the space 
uh, February, March of last year. I mean, putting in seven, eight hours every single day, learning about this stuff, you know, um, doing my own research. And I, I probably know 2% of what's out there, like maybe not even that much and, and where we're headed in this space. And so it's, it's interesting when I, there's so much more and we're at the very beginning and there's a lot of things that we don't know that's coming down the pipeline. There's a lot of things that we'll figure out. And we'll, you know, we'll be pioneers for hopefully through like consensus health and just healthcare and blockchain in general. But how do we provide a succinct enough answer to where the hospital understands exactly what we're talking about in a short amount of time? But then not only they understand it on a psychological level or kind of like a personal level, which I've been in the space for over like a year and a half, and I still don't understand a lot of these things. And it's convoluted and smart contracts and oracles and um, you know distributed ledger technologies. These are all different separate conversations. So how do, how do we bring all those things into that boardroom? They understand it, they grasp it, and then they're like, yes, this is gonna change lives. Now let's act on it. I, I don't know, I don't know how you do that all at once. And yeah. and, I, and that's why I think it's like a, a multi-year problem or well, not problem, but multi-year educational session to where the hospitals start hearing about blockchain a couple of years, couple of years, couple of years. Oh. It's improving lives here. And, and here's a model that has worked in wherever it works. And now, oh, we want to try that here. And then, as you know, with healthcare, academia, um, research, that's a, that's a multi-year problem. So it's, I wish everything happened tomorrow. But I, my best guess is all these things we want are like a 40 or 50-year thing down the line. I, I, I don't know how you speed it up. And I mean, I could be way off, but I just don't you know say- how you speed it up. Did you said you said forty to fifty year? Yeah. Okay. I think mine's my uh, estimate's a little bit shorter, more with like AI. Are you talking about with like other well, other technologies? I, to- yeah, I guess like defining that is going to be tough, but I would say like reaching a decent level of adoption and understanding in the healthcare system with blockchain will take more like five to ten years, yeah. um, uh, just because you know looking at history how other technology adoption happened in healthcare, EMRs or telehealth. Mm. It took a couple of decades for that all to roll out. And you're going to have naysayers, of course, but getting like 80% of hospitals or, you know, pharmacists using blockchain, it'll take, I think, five to 10 years. I could be wrong as well. Like these are just um, my estimates. I do think it'll be faster than the adoption of the internet though, because with blockchain, it's not just the adoption of, information accessibility or content accessibility you have this like i said the internet of value which provides the opportunity for new business models new ways to align incentives with different stakeholders that we never had before using you know peer-to-peer networks which we didn't have before right um so and as we all know like technology increases at exponential rates so yeah that's true uh who knows there. <laughs> yeah and you know something that i just saw apple releasing is their wearables with ray-bans i don't yeah. know if you saw that so they have these new glasses with ray-bans using augmented augmented reality i think that's very important in the healthcare space because your hands are prime real estate you're doing something in operating room you're doing a lot of uh, activities that use your hands and if you can free your hands if you don't have to hold a cell phone or some sort of like uh, device while you're in the hospital 
that can be very helpful. And you always have the ability to see with your glasses. And we talked about like computer vision, about making sure people are following the rules, not abusing the system. If everyone is required to wear these glasses while they work, it can really improve the trust amongst everyone in the system. Sure. Um, again, privacy issues galore there. <laughs> I'm not discounting all of that. I think there's a lot of stuff to unpack. Uh, yeah. But the potential for, for better systems is good, I think. And, and given the sensitive state, I think we should really be careful that we don't uh, punish people or humans for making mistakes. I think humans are humans. We're going to make mistakes. And I think we can improve and learn upon these mistakes by using this technology to help us. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's really interesting. Lots of other conversations we can have about that. <laughs> so we kind of talked about the situation where pediatric patients, they don't have the ability to either speak about their medical history have to rely on the, the parents. Any other like thoughts or use cases on that front using blockchain that you were thinking about? Or did we kind of cover them all from your perspective? Yeah, there's a yeah, a lot of the things we talked about earlier kind of fit in this mold where you know if, if you start from day one and you have all the patient's information, then you're not relying on patients to try to recall the medications or previous procedures. Because like you said, we're humans, we're gonna forget. I don't know what I had to, you know, for dinner yesterday. <laughs> Honestly, I woke up early this morning. I don't know what I did earlier this morning. So it's um, it's a lot of human error. And sometimes, you know, there's different with psychology. You know, my background in psychology. Me and my wife would talk about this all the time. Where I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try to tell a story to my friends, and I'll say, "Oh yeah, you know, like two weeks ago when we went and took that trip." And they're like, "Tyler, that was that was two years ago, man. Like that's you know transference." And and then you you try to say like, "Well." I was in this situation and it was like completely wrong, you know? And so there's pieces where blockchain is going to have the data there. And it's like, it doesn't really matter. Like your, your story, you can't really lie to me anymore because here, you know, here it is, or you can't prevent, like you said, you can't really um, pull out certain pieces and leave others tucked away. Now you came from like a privacy perspective, but if a doctor wants to see things that are pertinent for your case right now, he'll have the ability to see it and it won't matter if you remember or not. It's, it's there. You don't have to remember it's there. Um, and so I think that takes out the middleman of, of a parent uh, when it comes to strictly like a, from a pharmacy standpoint, Hey, what medications is your son or daughter taking? Cause we have technicians, we have, um, they're called med, med rec techs, so medication rec reconciliation technicians literally their only job is to go to patient rooms in the hospital and talk to the patient. And most of the time in my, my line of work is the mom or the dad or the guardian and ask them, Hey, what, what medications are on this list? And half the time it's either a partial list that we already have in the system from a prior hospitalization and it's segmented. And like I talked about transitions of care, sometimes that list is not up to date with what they're actually on in that moment. And that's a problem. But if we have distributed ledger technology and we're in the hospital and this patient has five medications that they're going to be discharged on, two years passed, they were in clinic visits and those, that list got updated. Well, now when it comes back to the hospital, it's exactly what it's supposed to be. And so we're no longer having to even spend time to go and talk to parents. We know what the child's on and, and we can make a quick decision as a medical team with the, the physician, the pharmacist, you know, the NP, um, nurses. And when you say, hey, here's their data, here's what they're on, is this appropriate, is this not based on why they're here? And 
that saves so much time, you know, speaking to a human who may provide you either false information on, you know, unintentionally, or they just don't know. So like grandma, they're at grandma's house and they fall and they come in the hospital. Grandma's not going to know what they're taking or doing. You know, that's another mm-hmm. issue. That's where I see it. That's where I see it being a huge uh, win for um, just like medication list and, and transitions of care. Yeah. And I agree with you. So one thing I want to clarify as well is a lot of companies or startups that are not in blockchain, uh, but they're in healthcare, they would say, oh, we have a solution for this. We have the technology and software that's very advanced and, and can work. And we're able to have the doctors or pharmacists input the information into our software. Uh, and then you'll always know what the up-to-date you know, uh, medication schedule is for the patient. The issue there is still it's under one company's servers and under one company's um, yes sphere of information or data lakes that's basically the main issue when you decentralize it you put the reliance directly onto the patient's Mm -hmm. responsibility that can be either good or bad in a way but that's kind of the idea is to give more or allow the patient to be empowered by owning their own data instead of having to rely on emrs and other ancillary products yeah, I think that goes in well on thing of that too. There's there's two big use cases I see blockchain um, being helpful. So sometimes you go to the hospital, you get charged for all sorts of things, right? And that's and there's where like fraud and like insurance and all that stuff mm-hmm. gets messed up. But I've heard examples of like you have a baby, and for me, like have had my daughter. You know, three three months ago we had our first daughter, and uh, I've heard like horror stories about people getting billed. And when you see all these papers, you're overwhelmed. And then you see that big number for like thousands and thousands of dollars. That's a whole other ethical topic. Um, but you say, well, I, I got to pay it, right? Like I, I had to pay this bill. Yeah. But you don't read the fine print. You don't read these things. And then you're not going to spend hours doing an audit of all of the things that you got billed for. There have been examples where you have a daughter, right? But they accidentally checked the box that was for circumcision which obviously is not going to happen, right? And so it, it, it's all these different pieces of, is that number truly the number I owe or is there flaws and mistakes? And I, I, I see that being a huge, um, you know, a huge way that we can circumvent uh, fraud and like insurance issues and just human error of, of, of like pressing a button and, and getting it wrong. Um, yeah, there was another yeah. one I was trying to think of, but yeah, yeah. It, it escaped me. So. No, I think that's so another important thing for the everyone working in blockchain and healthcare is user experience and the interface that they are on when they're actually using the products is very important. Uh, so it's got to be clear what they're doing. Uh, it's got to be very easy to digest from a layman's perspective. Uh, and then we can't depend on people to read everything. It's got to be like in clear black and white in a few sentences, explain what they are deciding on when they're checking out that box. Um, good point. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a lot about, you know, the pharmacy space, how it interacts with the blockchain revolution. Uh, what are some other DLT projects, decentralized ledger technology projects that you think are doing important work? You've mentioned a few. Are there any others that, you'd like to share? Yeah, there's, so I'll, I'll go to the healthcare 
realm first. And then I'll go with like research and stuff I've done, really cool things that I see uh, just out in the world. Um, while my, my first introduction to consensus health um, through John Walper, I gotta give credit where credit's due, like without him uh, talking to a random person like me who randomly messaged him, you know, I, I wouldn't be where I am like talking to you today. So always grateful to him for getting me on this healthcare blockchain journey. Um, he's actually connected me with other people and you know uh can you uh, Kevin, just let the audience know who that is yeah so john walper is he's he's got history um with ibm as well as consensus which is our like the parent company of consensus health and he works alongside this new um this new, call out a company called baseline protocol which is essentially uh distributed ledger technology they they aren't using all blockchain for everything. What they're trying to do is they're trying to make um, like legacy systems like, you know, they're trying to make companies more efficient at uh, basically with invoices. That's the best way I know how to describe it. So a prime example, they're working with Unibright as, as, a, as a blockchain company. Provide is also a blockchain company and they're all working together to streamline like the invoice process. So if you buy something, it's not like, you're not telling somebody, hey, I, this is an IOU. You have everything that's basically on the blockchain that allows, uh, verif you can verify that, hey, uh, they did this work, they did a good job, it's worth this amount of money. And then there's an easy button you press and then it sends the smart contract and they get paid whatever they're owed. Um, and the prime example, most recent thing that's actually live is they were working with Coke of North America. So Kona, one of the biggest bottle dis, uh, distributors in, in the world uh, using their technology and they call it a strategy. Baselining is the, is the verb that they use. Um, but that, that is who John Walper is in, in a very big nutshell. Um, and so, yeah, yeah so that, that's him. Uh, and he got me connected with, you know, Consensus Health, as you know, and then um, some pharmacists along the way. So Kevin Clausen, he's also an advisor at Consensus Health. He's been somewhat of a side mentor for me. Um, he teaches blockchain in pharmacy school. It, I, I want to say it's Lipscomb Pharmacy School. He's an adjunct professor there. Um, so he has students that are learning about this in the pharmacy space. He, he, he actually gave me advice to, to join in on hackathons. So I've literally gone to like different conferences hackathons to learn more and so he, he's in the pharmacy round he's like a mentor to me i've talked to phil baker who is a pharmacist in tennessee as well he has his own community pharmacy called good shepherd pharmacy and you can look this up as well and his his main product with dot technology is called remedy chain and it is essentially a, an inventory system using blockchain technology uh, to track and trace supply, as well as um, provide oncology patients medications um, through a donation system. I wish I had more details, but essentially what it is is Remedy Chain is this, uh, this inventory system. Um, you have oncology patients who either pass away and have leftover medications that are unopened bottles. You have um, patients that had to switch therapies because of side effects or they couldn't tolerate it. And so you have these unopened bottles and then you have millions and millions of dollars being wasted 
for these reasons and, and yeah, no way a good, to put them. It's a good use case. I actually talked to Phil. I met him at uh, in Nashville, I think like two years ago, and he was oh, working really? on this project. Yeah, so very interesting stuff. I did a short episode with him a couple of years ago. So if anyone wants to check that out, I should probably get a follow-up update episode in the in my queue there. But yeah, that's it's a really cool project. Um, you know, very interesting how he's solving a very specific problem that's real. So I do like that. Yeah, I think that'll branch out. I think, I mean, he's doing very well for the, the specific use case with oncology, but think about that. That's, that's oncology. That's that's one small disease state in, in, in the world of different diseases. You know, Sean talks a lot about the TBIs, so total brain injuries, uh, neurological disorders, and you name it, and seizures, diabetes, heart, heart disease, uh, what cystic fibrosis, all these things that are untapped. But like I said, we got we to start with a small model that works and then we can branch out and, and, and use it in different ways. Yeah, so, and just to, just to give some perspective on like that use case and the different stakeholders in the healthcare in a broader way, when you think about what they're doing, it's they're, they're reducing waste. They're having less waste of drugs in the entire ecosystem. However, what that means is those pharma companies might be selling slightly less drugs overall uh, because there's you know less waste um you know so that's like a i don't want to say disadvantage but a disincentive for pharma companies overall potentially so they yeah. it's an interesting dynamic and that's something that we need to be aware of when we're designing these ecosystems it's like how do we make sure you know um we're doing the right thing for the greatest amount of people and we're not hurting people in the process um I think yeah. the pharma companies can handle, you know, a few less streams of revenue in that sense for people who don't have the money to afford it anyways. Um, but anyways, I digress. That's the, that's the point I want to make. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So that's, that's kind of the healthcare side of things in, in the future and, and real world use cases that we're already seeing at a, at a very early stage. Other things I'm super excited for, like sports. I love sports. Um, mm -hmm. I was a part of Carolina Fever, which is a sports organization at UNC Chapel Hill. And I, yeah, I was that crazy person. I was painting people up for football games, for basketball games. Um, I, I, the only time I ever got up early, I'm not a morning person. The only time I ever got up like super early is if there was a eight o'clock, well, I mean a 12 o'clock game, like tip for basketball. And I had my ticket, like it was called a phase one ticket. So you were literally in the, the, the front of like the whole um, basketball arena. I get there at like 3.30 in the morning, make sure I was first in line. And it, I mean, it could be like snow and rain and whatever. It didn't matter, man. Four years of college, best best four years of my life. And uh, just so much fun, right? So I see sports and I see, I keep going back to NFTs because I, I think there's going to be like a wave and people are going to get trapped like with the liquid money that they had wrapped up in NFTs and it's going to crash. They're going to be super upset and mad, but then it's going to come back. But I see the NFTs being tickets for sporting events. Um, and you have Chili's, which is one of the esports entertainment um, crypto projects that are big into esports and have already signed some contracts with some, some football uh, soccer teams. And that that is going to be crazy, man, because you're not, you're not going to have paper waste anymore with tickets. Everything's going to be within your... I think everybody's going to have like a major wallet 
where they have, you know, and you have some of that now with like your blockchain addresses and, and stuff, but you're going to have your ticket on your phone and in a secure way that like somebody can't fraud, make a, make a fraudulent ticket, which that's bad for scalpers, but you know, it's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, trying to open up for everybody and be more transparent and, and fair. Um, and then you get like incentives. So if you show up at a game or something and you're in attendance and, and, but just because you bought a ticket to the game, right? Sometimes in, in a giveaway, you still receive the prize, even if you didn't show up. But I see sports where you scan your ticket on the blockchain, you walk in, and then because you're there at that moment in history or time at a concert or whatever, you get a token back for, or you get like a couple of tokens or like fan art or fan. So if I go to a music concert and I support that fan by buying a ticket, well, now my wallet gets updated with that fan's coin or that fan, like a gift or, you know, something like that. I mean, like the artist, right? Not the fan. Yes, yes, yes. Right. So the artist can provide, yeah. So the artist is able to provide their content. Um, and or athlete, able, right? Yep, yep, either way. And that we're just getting started there. Um, but you got, you know, you got all these people. So you got like Leo Messi, who's, who's into NFTs now. Uh, there's, uh, what's it called? You got like hot shots, but you also have um, well, Dapper Labs. Yeah. Dapper Labs is uh, has been working with NBA Top Shots, and they recently, I think, they announced some uh, collaboration with Google Cloud, which is a big deal. Hundreds of millions of dollars pouring wow. into to how you know they store some of their data. Um, kind of interesting uh, because it is you know Google's being a centralized company in a way. It's kind yeah. of interesting, but I think. They're working it out. I don't know all the details, but there's a lot of information about it online. Um, yeah. But I do see it eventually it moving into like a more Web3 world where these services will start to use decentralized file storage systems and servers. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have to get into all that. It's just another a huge topic as well. I want to yeah. ask you a few uh, more personal questions as well. Absolutely. Uh, what is the most influential book you've read that you want to share? Yeah. So I actually have to tip my hat to Shonovan. I mean, dude's a class act, right? He, uh, <laughs> he mentioned this book to me. He said, cause I asked him at one point about, you know, something influential he's read and the name of the book, uh, I think I have it here. It's called, um, what do you do with an idea? And it's a children's book. And it's literally, I think it's like 10 or 12 pages, but super simple. Um, and, it, and it talks about how not being afraid to, to share an idea and watching that idea grow in, into to action, essentially. And it, it was kind of transformative for me, um, something being so simple. And then that's something I can read to, to my daughter and, and, and teach her all the things I didn't know when I was younger. You know, I'm trying to make her better. That's what we do as parents, man. Make them better than you are. And um, I, have, I have all these, like, crazy dreams and Sarah, my wife, she's like, you're, you're an idiot, man. She's just three months old. Like, yeah, you, you can't, you can't be thinking about this. I'm, cause I, I'm like, she's going to be a classical piano player. She's going to, you know, go on and be an Olympic athlete and all these things. But I want to help foster that growth. And, and, and really we're, we're at a time in history that I don't think we'll see again in our lifetime where we can invest in this technology and the, in these ideas we can run with ideas now we have the freedom to, to share the ideas because once everything's kind of built in stone you don't have as much leeway we're kind of being pioneers and and 
what can we do with an idea? Well, we can pretty much do anything right now. And that, that's what's cool about working with you, working with Consensus Health. And, and shout out to Sean for sharing that book because I don't, I want my daughter to grow up and when she hits 18, 20, whatever it is, and she's off on her own, she's already been taken care of because of the, the things I did today. And, and I tell everybody this, I'm like, we're at, a, we're at a time in history that we'll never get that. And we're starting to build Web 3.0. And I know for a fact, I told Sarah, I said, from an investment standpoint and from a learning standpoint, I'm like, I know I'm putting a lot of time in this, but it's because I think it's important. And I care about it. I'm actually like super passionate about something again. And I'm, I'm fired up because I could, I, I'm okay with all my investments going to zero. I'm okay with this failing, right? I'm okay if this fails, it just doesn't work. I, I don't believe that's the case, but um, if, it, if it fails, I'm okay. I'm not okay with not trying because if I get 10 years, 20 years down the road, it's almost disingenuous to, and genuine of me. Um, also, I feel like I am holding out on my family and actually being disrespectful for them for not taking the sleep. Because if 10 years down the road, everything goes the way within it's going to go, life changes, uh, crypto's all the way through the, to the moon, you know. <laughs> and I chose, and I just said, ah, no, I'm good. Like my friend that could have invested like way back when, uh, I'm going to hate myself to a point where I, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. And I, I can't live with that as much as I can live with everything failing and going to zero. So that was the first, that was the main book. Um, but I will mention another book that, that my grandma um, actually told me about. She said, Hey, this reminds me of you and just your, your openness about, about life and just shooting for the stars. It's called uh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel. And it's about this it's by Richard Bach. Um, he has a couple other books that I actually read recently, so Illusions and One. Um, but basically, the book is about this seagull that is a part of a flock, and he's kind of off on his own. And the flock is very conformist, and they um, they basically do what seagulls do, and they fly, and they catch fish, and they go back to the island, and they stay there, right? And that's the same thing over and over and over. Well, he's off doing barrel rolls in the sky. He's, you know, he's looking out into the sunset. He's flying and, and, and doing trips and trying to, trying to pick up as much speed as he can and, and trying to get faster and better. And everybody calls him an outcast, basically uh, pushes him out of the flock because he's so different and so um, extreme. And then the book goes on where he, he reaches new levels of, I guess, consciousness, new levels of um, excitement until he finally becomes like the, the master teacher to all these other young sigils. And in a way, I think that that is a book that a lot of people should read. Um, it's a really, really good book. And it also is a motivator. So I'll read it from time to time just to have a reset button and get refocused and realize like, yeah, I, you know, the time and the effort that goes in, and I actually have a question for you about this, but like the time and the effort that we're putting in now I don't feel like it's wasted because I feel like there's a passion behind it. I feel like we're all working together. It's so Absolutely. new. And so, how, you know, I don't think we're going to fail, but that's the whole reason you start in the first place. It's not about what the end destination is, but, it, and one of my favorite quotes of all time, I, I say this in pretty much every interview I ever do, is um, there's a video I watched by Earl Nightingale. It's called The Strangest Secret. Um, and the quote is, success is the progressive realization of the worthy ideal. The way I sum that up is if you're chasing a goal, 
you're a success. It doesn't matter if you reach the end. If you're chasing something, if you're working on something like we are, then we're a success. And I believe being like the physical and chasing goals and chasing ideas, all three of those together are kind of how I live my life in, in, a, in a way. And it's been, it's been so rewarding and humbling so far. Tyler, I appreciate you sharing that. And I feel like I share your passion uh, in this space. Like it is something that we are sort of like pioneers in the space, trying to get the message out there. And we're not saying we have all the answers Mm -hmm. for sure, but at least like you said, we're we're trying to reach that major goal. And, you know, I do appreciate all your time and everything you've put into it as well. And I think that young people will actually be inspired by what you're working on, hopefully find value in it and branch out from what you've done. So, so this is all like a, you know, a dynamic world we're living in. So, um i love it yeah thanks for the recommendations yeah absolutely um i can send them to you too if you need me to but i think i think just like the passion stuff we have like my one of my hobbies or one of the things that i would love to do if money wasn't an issue etc i've always wanted to like travel the world and, and and be a motivational speaker and and talk to different people and i and i hope uh that that starts with you know the pharmacy school and the hospital that I, that I work with um, and like bringing, you know, shine or bringing you or consensus health and kind of being like a traveling pat to, to different conferences and just saying like, Hey, here's cool things we're doing. Here's cool things. And that blockchain is doing in healthcare and provide my like educational sessions or, or like a series or something and just motivating the younger generation to, to pick up early and, and, and make it even better than what we're trying to do. And, I hope we get there. And I, I think, I think we're doing all the right things. Like, like this meeting right now, I think this is a first step in education as well, but um, mm-hmm. man, that's what I'm hoping. I'm, I'm, I, I make the joke, like I'm going to retire from my nine to five and like <laughs> three to five years. And then I'm just going to go off and like travel and, and, and talk to people and uh, you know, be a motivational speaker and, and start my rap career and, and, and become <laughs> an actor and like all these other crazy things. So that's kind of yeah. where I'm at. And one day we'll make a rap video together. Uh, oh, absolutely. That, that will absolutely but, happen for sure. But one thing I want to also address is on that note is, like you said, like these pioneers that are having these startups in the blockchain healthcare, well, they're all taking risks, right? They are all making assumptions about what they think the future is um, with the possibility of all of us being wrong in a way about the idea mm-hmm. of decentralization. Uh, I yeah. personally you know, don't think we're going to be wrong and uh, we're, and all making these bets with our time and investments. So we'll just have to see. We can't really call the future, but what we could do is keep learning uh, on what's out there. And I think what I've seen in the last three years of me doing this is there's increased interest and there's more possibilities, not less. So that keeps me motivated. Obviously it keeps you motivated too, which is is great. And that's why I'm having you on the show. It's it's really nice to speak with you and hear from you about these different topics. Yeah, that was um, my that was my question. That was what my question yeah. was going to be to you was, uh, when we started this journey, like, I got all my friends, like half my friends, call me crazy, and it's because they don't know, like they haven't done the research and stuff. And I'll I'll tell them to the face. I'm like, you you can't have an opinion about something that you haven't done your research on. I'm like, you can. We are we're all entitled to our opinion, but you can't tell me what I'm doing is wrong, or you can't tell me what I'm learning is a waste of time when you haven't done it for yourself. And so in a way, I'm, you know, 
I'm not trying to be cocky, but it's like, you don't know what I know. That's, <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah, I think there's different risk appetites for different people. Some people yeah. don't mind taking the risk of being wrong. I think me yeah. and you are like, I guess in that category for like in the being in the space. Uh, now a lot of people are like, you know, there's thousands of people that are very passionate about blockchain healthcare and I'm trying to get all of them on the show. Uh, but the yeah. point is like having that risk appetite, it varies based on your situation in life too. We, I don't think everyone has the opportunities that we do. Like we have to be grateful for our situation. Oh, yeah. Like people yeah. are more focused on the simple things, shelter, food and things like that. So um, I every day do feel grateful for the position I'm in. And Absolutely. Uh, I think that's something that even motivates me more because what I, what I think I'm doing is helping the other people reach that potential too. So they can not have to worry about their healthcare as much. It'll just become part of a very clear system and transparent system that they can interact with without worrying about payments, without worrying about, um, you know, which treatments to take science is going to continuously get better. And I think more transparent and open science will help, help us get there. Um, that's what drives me really is just getting that message out there and hoping people get inspired by what we're talking about. Um, me and you can't do everything, of course, like, you know, it's just about trying to build the network and the community so that, uh, all the problems eventually get solved. Of course, you know, there's an asymptote we'll never reach forever. Uh, but that's something that we can keep striving for. And yeah. Does that, do you think I answered the question? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think, I don't mean you're on the same wavelength as we're trying to just learn and grow and do better and, and utilize this cool new way with technology and with random ideas bouncing off each other and, and being willing to fail. And I think that's yeah. when people succeed is if, if you're willing to fail and then you can only go up, you know, <laughs> and, um, I, I think that's where we're at. So yeah, no, I, I appreciate that answer. And it's, it's cool to, uh, to learn from you and to, to be on this journey with you. And it's funny because man, I'm, I, you know, I picture, I don't know. Do you, do you like beer? You like, you, I, you like, I drink beer. Yeah. I like beer. Yeah. I mean, it's not my go-to drink. I actually, go <laughs> uh, you know, my, I like tequila, man. I'm a tequila you guy. Terramana. <laughs> you know that Terramana yet with the rock? Uh, I don't think I've actually tried that. Um, it's smooth. It's pretty good. But okay. we, I see us in the future, five, ten years down the road, when when all these things we're talking about now actually, you know, come to fruition, and we look back and we laugh about like this this meeting and conversation. But I, I mean, I see us being friends for a long time. So I, you know, I'm, I'm holding mm -hmm. you to it. We're gonna we're gonna have some tequila on an island one day, um, and uh, I, look, I look forward to it. Yeah, no, that sounds like a good time. Uh, yeah. Taking some margaritas on our boat, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, People say to the moon, I say to the boat. Either way, to the sea, <laughs> open sea, right? Not there you go. Oh. Um, by the way, like nothing we, no projects we talk about have like sponsored any of this. This is just kind of like our opinion, and nothing is should be taken as financial or any kind of recommendation. So please do your own research. That's very important in this space. We know we are just two people. We don't know everything. So don't take our word for uh, it and don't, you know, make any investments just based on what we said, please. <laughs> yeah, very important well. because there are people, younger people in the space that might not be aware of that. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. 
Um, so I have a couple more personal questions. Like we can kind of go through them pretty quickly and then we can go and wrap up and see if you have any other final takeaways you want to share with the audience. One was if you had a microchip, if you had to have a microchip implanted, where would you want it implanted on your body? Wow. Okay. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be just a random tie thought. I, I would want it to move. I would want it to be mm. like, I, you'd have to make it in a way that it wouldn't be. So like from a medication standpoint, the way we get rid of our medication in the body is through excretion. So either, um, you know, it gets metabolized in your liver, you pee it out, you know, different ways to get rid of it. So there would have to be a way to retain the chip, but I would want it to be in circulation. So whether it's transporting oxygen appropriately, or if I'm a healthy patient, it's, it's, it's doing whatever it was designed to do, but it's dynamic. And so it's traveling through my circulatory system. And if I have local pain in my elbow, it goes to that place. It helps to heal that area with, with medication or with, I don't know, massage or technology, whatever, whatever the chip's programmed to do. But then it can actually holistically monitor my body, take care of my body. But then if I have different injuries, it can go to that spot and fix it. But then like say the initial insertion point was like my hand. If I needed to call that chip for any reason to fix it or to whatever, I could press a button and it would float to my hand and then I could just take it out, replace it, and then put in a new one that would do the same thing and kind of be dynamic and interactive throughout the, the whole body. Interesting. I could see like a potential future with nanobots accomplishing some yeah. of that goal. Um, yeah. We're not there yet. Uh, definitely <laughs> need a lot more years of technology advancements for us to be at that stage. Um, but it's interesting. Interesting answer. Thank you for that. Have, yeah. Have you, uh, have you seen um, Elon Musk and Neuralink? Sure. Have you seen that? Yeah. I saw, I did, it's crazy. I don't understand how it works, but I, I whether or not all this is true, I'm not 100% sure, but he, you know, he, he, he implanted his chip Neuralink on this um, primate, right? And they're playing a game of like Pong or whatever it is. And they're playing with their hand and they're playing with the joystick. And eventually the monkey or the primate is just sitting there, no hands, no nothing. And he's moving the paddles with his, basically with Neuralink and with his brain. I'm like, how do you even teach your brain to project that and to actually like thoughts turn into action in front of you. Like it, it, it blew my mind. It blew it's my a mind. new world with the brain computer interface technologies. I, I think it'll be another big bioethics conversation. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's really powerful for people without some use of their brain. So like a lot of um, mentally handicapped people can benefit hugely from this kind of technology. So I think, and that's like the first you know, a beachhead marketplace that they're going for. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, it's, it's very, it's going to take a lot of time. And I think we still don't understand enough about the brain and consciousness to, to really reach the full potential, of course, but um, that is, yeah. and just for the audience to know, there's like hundreds of electrodes, like micro fibers that go into your brain with this device and detect signals, electrical signals. And, you know, after a certain while, they'll measure these signals and form like a, a, you know, an algorithm based on their model. 
to determine what the person is thinking. Um, it's not a perfect science. I think it's getting better very fast. Yep. Uh, definitely one I'm watching. Definitely one that requires some neurosecurity advancements too. I do think blockchain will play a part in some way in the future. And for any startups out there or any people out there that are looking to start a startup, neurosecurity sounds like a really important place to be in the next you know, five to 10 years. Um, moving on from that subject, I know it's a whole other topic, but moving on, is, I just have a final question about yourself and how you stay active and healthy, because I think it's important for everyone to really find their groove or find daily habits that make them healthy. Um, you know, computers, technology is all great, but we still are biological systems that require exertion, require good diet and all that. So what do you do to stay healthy? Yeah. Well, well now it's pushing my daughter around in a stroller, uh, <laughs> for, for long walks. Um, but out, outside of that, uh, I love, I love all sports and in, in college, I played pretty much every intramural sport. And the funny thing is we, so when you when you're at UNC, everybody wants a T-shirt, like an intramural championship T-shirt, and we finally got one like our senior year, me and my buddies. But it was it was it wasn't in like one of the like super cool sports. So if you win it in basketball, you're doing something. If you win it in like soccer, you're you're really ridiculously good. We got our ours in a uh, wiffle ball uh, a Saturday wiffle ball tournament. And uh, so I, I tend to still play sports with um, like basketball um, when I'm by myself or, um, you know, I'll, I'll throw baseball and stuff around. Um, so that's, and if anybody wants to play, I'll play soccer as well. But yeah, now it's, now it's mainly taking the daughter around work and around the neighborhood. And then from like a diet perspective, man, I, in college, and I'm not lying to you, in college, I had the worst diet. I had a, a an old trunk that my uncle used in college. And so this thing has been in our family for 30 plus years. And it was my, um, basically my treat box that my Mimi, which my grandma, she, she would fill it up every time I was out. She's like, all right, let me know when you want more. Dude, I, I was eating Dino Winnie's, honey buns, spray cheese, crackers, cosmic brownies, candy. Like, and then I met Sarah, my wife, and she changed all that. She's like, you're going to eat healthy. She's like, you're going to die early if you don't. Shout out to Sarah. Great job. Because <laughs> that stuff sounds like junk. But <laughs> Yeah. And so now, like, um, a lot more, uh, you know, protein, vegetables. Um, she won't let me keep candy in the house anymore. Uh, that was a struggle, you know. She weaned me off energy drinks a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah. I mean, behind every great man is a more perfect and amazing woman. So I got, I got me one here at home taking care of me love that that sounds great um so happy for you and on a final note what would you like to share with the audience that maybe we missed and haven't talked about so far and then you can we can uh wrap up yeah so i'll, I'll say the cliche thing um for anybody that's listening i i'm not like i said i'm not supposed to be where i'm at well i say that and then obviously i'm here um but believe in yourself man and 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 find find mentors and find people that want to see you succeed. And as hard as it might be, it, there's going to be people that doubt you and that want you to fail. And for those people, you got to realize like you've known to put in so much time trying to get them to change their mind or uh, support you. But 
if they're not in your corner, then there's no reason to to keep them there. And and you need to look towards people that are, that are going to lift you up. They're going to fill up your cup and and keep you motivated and encouraged and um, just passionate about what you're doing. And then just believing in yourself because it is true when parents and others tell you that you're not going to be where you think you're going to be in five, 10 years. And I, although I'm a pharmacist, I'm a pediatric pharmacist, that's exactly what I wanted to do from a uh, career standpoint. And I've done it. And I think I was very fortunate to have two dream jobs at the very beginning of, of my career. That way I didn't get to 56 years old, finally got my dream job and realized, Hey, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be ungrateful, but Hey, this is not the end all be all. There's so much more to, to life. Um, and I feel like a lot of people chase a dream that when they finally get it, they realize, oh, it's not exactly what I wanted or it's not going to bring me the joy and the happiness that I want. So always keep looking for new things. Don't be afraid to, to take risks as whatever, whatever you tolerate and, and, and enjoy the ride. But make sure you have mentors uh, that are there to support you. That's the only reason I'm here where I am now. Um, but that's why you find people that are along for the journey and that, that want to see you succeed. So I'll just leave you with that. And, yeah, man. So grateful to you. I'm grateful to Consensus Health. I'm grateful to, to blockchain and, and crypto in general. And definitely, I mean, I would have said, hey, I'm, I'm five years old. And when I grow up, I want to be a blockchain expert, right? That wasn't a, that wasn't a thing. So yeah. for everybody that's listening that's young, y'all have that choice. You can say, oh, this sounds amazing. Like, let me do that. And if we help, if Ray or I help to inspire that, that's, that's amazing. But we don't care about that. We want y'all to succeed and, and do great things. But then who knows, like when you get there, you're like, oh, blockchain, I, I want to be that. And then you hit, our, you hit our age and you're like, oh my God, there's this new thing that right. now I'm going to tell other people about. So it's world, the world is your oyster for sure. Agreed. Tyler, it's been amazing talking to you and getting some insights around how blockchain is impacting the pharmacy world. Uh, you as a pharmacist as well, it's just been really interesting digging deep into it. Uh, and I think we had a really great philosophical dis discussion as well <laughs> towards the end. And yeah. I think it was, you know, I think that's really important too, because uh, this whole decentralization world, the Web 3.0, there's a philosophical aspect to it as well that we should acknowledge and talk about too. Um, thanks again. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it, Ray. And in, anytime you want to come back on, just let me know. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.